1: I'm Hemant Mehta.
2: And I'm Jessica Blimke.
1: And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com.
2: Barbara Mancini is an ER nurse from Pennsylvania. In 2013, she was arrested and prosecuted on charges of trying to help her terminally ill 93-year-old father take his own life. I'll leave it at that because I'd rather uh, hear her tell a story. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us this evening.
0: Thank you, Jessica. It's an honor to be here. Uh,
2: she- so I guess let's just start off. Can you sort of give us the lowdown on uh, your story?
0: Yeah, it's it's a pretty horrific story. Uh, February 7, 2013, I was uh, doing caregiving from my dying father. He's 93 years old. He was in home hospice care. And uh, he had fallen the day before had the worst night ever, and uh, was in significant pain. My dad had a a vial of morphine to take for pain. It was a one-ounce vial, and he had been using it on and off throughout the week. And that morning when I was there with him, he asked me to hand him his morphine. Uh, This vial had a child-proof cap on it, which my mother could never open. And I could open it, but I had a little difficulty with it, so we always let dad open the cap and we'd measure out the dose. And I did the same routine with him that day. But before I could measure out the dose, he took what was left in this vial. Now, there was probably a pretty large dose of morphine in there. I know he was having significant pain. Um, so he took the, the morphine and he got eventually got drowsy with it. About two hours after that happened, a home hospice nurse came by to check on him. And I told her he took the morphine. I didn't think I had anything to hide. At the time she arrived, my dad was drowsy, but he was still able to respond to questions, and he could follow commands, and he was breathing normally. My dad also had uh, advanced directives. That clearly stated that he wanted no life-prolonging treatment. I was his legal health care decision maker, his health care proxy. He had a standing do not resuscitate order. The hospice nurse and then her supervisor insisted that my father be taken to the hospital to be treated for an overdose. And I resisted that because my father had made it very clear that he never wanted to go to a hospital. In fact, that was documented in his hospice record. And uh, we we got into an argument there in the house, and um, they ended up calling 911. And uh, the police arrived at the house first, and then paramedics, and the police informed me that I no longer had any say in what happened to my father and my father was removed from the house and taken to the hospital against his wishes. And uh, while that was going on, the police arrested me then and there in the house, and they charged me with aiding and attempted suicide. In Pennsylvania, this, this happened in Pennsylvania, and this is a second degree felony in Pennsylvania, as it is in many other states that have these laws. And a conviction for that kind of uh, charge can get you up to 10 years in prison in this state and uh so i was prosecuted actually by the state attorney general the reason it got to the attorney general's uh office is because the local county prosecutor uh, had been a friend of my younger sister's since high school and she didn't want anything to do with the case so she handed it up to the ag's office and they pursued it aggressively and uh my prosecution lasted a full year until a judge dismissed the case really threw the case out, said they had no evidence backing up this charge. She was, and the judge who ruled on it was uh, very critical of everybody involved in this, ranging from the hospice and the police and the prosecutor. Um, And just to back up a bit, my father lived for an additional four days in the hospital being subjected to the exact treatments that he was very, very clear that he never wanted to have done to him. So all his... Careful planning and the conversations we had about his end-of-life wishes were just completely thrown out, and uh, he was subjected to what I would argue is medical torture for four days before he ultimately died. So that's my story in a very quick uh, synopsis.
1: Barbara, I'm sorry you had to go through all that. I do want to make uh, a couple things really clear uh, just for my own understanding here. The Judge basically said, "We're going to throw out this prosecution, this these charges against you because they said you did not help your father try to end his life. Is that correct?
0: Well, the process that occurred was I had a preliminary hearing in front of a district Justice in pennsylvania they're They're like the minor court people, and it was bound over for trial." And then I filed a petition for habeas corpus, which is a legal motion to dismiss the charge against me. And that motion hearing was in front of a regular judge. Mm -hmm. And this regular judge determined that the prosecution never even proved that my father was attempting to end his life. So the actual uh, charge against me was never even really determined to be something that actually happened. Okay. So that was one one part of her very uh, scathing ruling that she she pointed out. But the other part was that all the evidence that was submitted by the prosecution was inadmissible hearsay evidence received from second and third persons, and it was then contradicted between direct examination and cross-examination. So there were a number of of problems, procedural problems that occurred with the prosecution. And, uh, you know, it would take a long time to discuss that, but that's that's basically how that occurred.
1: I want to step away from the actual legality of this, and, and let me ask you point blank, if your father at the time had asked you to give him, like, an extra dose of morphine that could have ended his life, what do you think about that option? Because this is something that I think five states say, uh, with a doctor's help— this is legal, um in other states, like the ones you said you would be prosecuted for it, but I mean, what do you think in your case you would have done, and what do you think about that option in general?
0: Well, I want to correct something
1: yes, please. for a
0: doctor saying it's legal for a doctor to give someone like that at their request it the states that have medical aid in dying, a person has to go through a very uh fairly rigorous screening process. So mm-hmm. someone can't just ask a physician, give me some extra uh, <laughs> right. morphine right. or whatever, and they can do it in those states and have it be legally covered. That's not how the process works. They have to make right. verbal requests, written requests. They have to undergo screening to see if they're eligible for it. They
1: have it. to be terminally and, ill, I think, too, right?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the eligibility criteria is that a person has to be mentally capable of making their own decisions. hmm you know, they have to be a legal adult. They have to be terminally ill. <laughs> so, and uh, they have to be able to self administer the medication. So, you can't in- inject someone for this in the states where they have uh, medical aid and dying. They have to be able to swallow it on their own. Um, so, if you're asking me, if my father had said, give me this so I can die.
1: Yeah, I mean, this Um, is a hard question because I I don't know what I would do in that position because as much as I don't want my parents to suffer, um, I I don't know what I would do. And you've been in that situation that is unimaginable, and I wonder what your thoughts are about it.
0: Well, he didn't say to me, I want it so I can die. He Mm -hmm. told me he was in pain. Right. So to be honest with you... I haven't teased out that actual scenario in my mind. That's not what happened that day. Mm -hmm. Um, It it would be a very difficult thing to to try to contemplate. Mm -hmm. And I I can't really say what I would do. But that's not what I did that day. I provided my father with his legally prescribed medicine. He took more than he was supposed to. Although, uh, when I found my father's, when I finally got my father's, hospice records and discovery, uh, I found out that he had originally been prescribed a much larger dose of morphine than he ever received. So he was not having adequate pain relief uh, given by this hospice. And as I went through this process, I found out that that's an issue other people have had with hospice care. And I want to make it clear that I I absolutely support good quality hospice care. Mm -hmm. But it's not that uncommon for other people to have issues with with uh, home not just home hospice providers, but they they've had problems with uh, the quality of hospice care that their loved ones have received. That may have something to do with the fact that three quarters of all hospice providers now are for profit companies. Oh. It didn't used to be that way. Um, there are some observers who feel that having a, a for profit provide that kind of care uh, may decrease the quality of the care. and You will hear hospice um, professionals say, well, you can't really uh, make a blanket statement that for-profits do a worse job than not-for-profits. It, it does vary. But um, you just cannot assume that enrolling in a hospice means that you will automatically get the care you're supposed to get. Unfortunately, I made that assumption. I very naively made that assumption that, you know, they would do what they were supposed to do, and they didn't. So I think that was what set my father up for that situation that day because he had pain that was not relieved. And that's one of the selling points of hospice care is that they will help your loved one die in comfort and with dignity, and that's not what happened with my dad. So any request about hastening someone's death it absolutely has to be uh, preceded by the question, are you receiving adequate care for your end-of-life symptoms? And if the person's not, then that's a real problem that has to be addressed.
2: So, I i mean, obviously there's a lot that's upsetting about your story, but the thing that's really sticking with me is the fact that he was brought to the hospital and and put on put under this care that he didn't want and not just that he didn't want that he had documented that he didn't want how does That's something correct. like that happen
0: well how did that happen here's here's what happened um after i was arrested my elderly mother who had gone to the er with my father was asked by the hospital to give her consent to allow them to treat my dad mm-hmm. and I was at the police station at the time. She called me on my cell phone, and she asked me what she should do. And I said, I think you should follow Dad's wishes. And the police captain who arrested me then took my cell phone, spoke with the ER physician, and in front of me he said, if, if he dies, meaning my dad, things will go worse for her, Jeez. meaning me. So that information was relayed to my mother, that if my father died, I would be in much worse trouble. Now, he's already dying, you know, he's Mm -hmm. terminally ill. So, my mother's placed in the agonizing position of having to choose between honoring her promise to my father. She loved him. They were married for 62 years. She had to choose between honoring his wishes or helping me, her daughter. Now, just imagine being put in that position she really felt like she had no choice. So she gave her consent for the hospital to treat my dad. And uh, so they started doing normal, you know, blood tests, that kind of thing. My dad was there for another two hours in that ER, and then he got more drowsy, but he never stopped breathing. And they gave him a reversal agent for the morphine. They gave him a dose of Narcan. And he was just... Absolutely livid. Pulled out his IV, tried to leave the ER. He was furious. He knew I was in trouble. It was a horrible scene. Um, But he ended up being admitted to the hospital and endured four days of unwanted, uh, painful treatments. And he eventually died of pneumonia.
2: Was was he conscious through all of this?
0: Not through the whole thing. He was initially, though. Uh, he very, it, that first night in the hospital, he developed a high fever, went up to 103. He then quickly went downhill after that. He developed kidney failure, heart failure. Like I said, he got pneumonia, and then it progressed to overwhelming sepsis, which which means infection spreads throughout the body. So it was a very rough end for him.
2: I, I do think uh, an important point to uh, sort of – circle back to is that you are a nurse so you yeah. do have medical understanding of what was going on you weren't I, I do you think that the fact that you have that medical knowledge is knowledge co- colors things in one way or the other because like on one hand you have a greater understanding of the real, very real pain that your dad was in but on the other hand you do have that medical knowledge to know like if he had asked you to help him end his life you would know how to do that do you think that made any difference in when they were coming after you I suspect that
0: it did. Yeah. Um. I mean, I can't know for certain sure. what someone else is thinking, but I suspect that had something to do with it.
1: Let me ask you about some of the positions critics may have. One is that uh, if we allow assisted suicide uh, to, to become legal, there are people who may take advantage of that. They may, uh, that the people who want to end their lives uh, they're being manipulated. They're being taken advantage of yeah. by people who may not have their best interests at heart. But like you mentioned, in the states where it is legal, there is a long, arduous process to to be able to be eligible uh, for that to be legal. I, I'm just trying to wonder: what are the critics? Uh, play devil's advocate for me for a second. Mm-hmm. Why are people so opposed to letting someone who is, uh, let's assume, let's assume the best. Uh, uh, case here, uh, as far as so we can say, that, so to speak, which is to say that if they are terminally ill and they are suffering, what is the argument of saying that person should be forced to stay alive against their will?
0: Well, there are a number of opposition arguments. And the one you mentioned where someone uh, who may not have the person, the dying person's best interest at heart, I mean, those are legitimate concerns. There certainly are people out there who... Um, are waiting in the wings to get whatever inheritance or whatever they may have. Uh, But the way the aid in dying uh, laws are written is that the request has to come from the dying person. It can't come from a relative. And if there's any suspicion that uh, the request is generated because of depression or some other uh, issue, well, they don't get the prescription. So we, I don't know if I would say it's an arduous process, but it, it's a uh, a detailed process, and there are a lot of people who just don't qualify. Certainly other uh, objections have come up about it, and not just about taking advantage of an elderly person. The most strenuous, I think the most common objections are religious objections, the, mm-hmm the most well-funded and vocal opponent of medical aid in dying is the US Conference of Catholic Bishops. But there are some disability rights groups that oppose it and most state medical societies oppose it. They say that their their role is as a healer and uh, you know my uh, answer to that is if you can no longer heal, are you just going to allow someone to suffer? Yes, hospice care can help a lot of people, maybe most people, uh, get through the, the very difficult uh, discomfort of dying, but they can't help everyone. I mean, that that's just not true, that everyone can have a peaceful death under hospice care. Uh, the other issue is personal autonomy. Should an individual have a, a say in this most personal decision about their own lives? Um I mean, I certainly believe they should. Uh, Another reason I support medical aid in dying after this whole process that happened with my father is that studies showed that in Oregon, end-of-life care improved after medical aid in dying was enacted. Uh, It increased uh, hospice and palliative training for physicians. Um, Advanced directives are honored. So, you know, it, it had positive effects positive effects in in a lot of other ways. Um, No question. There are people who really, really object to it. And uh, one of the religious uh, arguments is that life is a gift from God and we're we're not able to take that away because we didn't provide that. Well, that may work for people who have those beliefs, but I think most people would agree that we shouldn't be imposing religious beliefs on other people.
1: I cannot for the life of me understand how, like the Conference of Catholic Bishops, people who are so pro-life, mm-hmm. uh, so to, uh, self-proclaimed so pro-life, that they would argue that we want to force you to live even when you are suffering. I mean, it's one thing to say we want to protect the fetus or something— but when someone's near the end of their life and they're struggling, to force them to stay alive yeah. seems to be almost the opposite no, of pro-life. No, but that
2: was Mother Teresa's whole entire thing right. is she thought that suffering brought you closer to God. So yeah. I, I don't know if that's what well, the yeah, logic that's is. That's but... true.
0: I mean, it's, it's, that line of thought says that suffering holds valuable lessons for, for the dying and for their loved ones, and it can re- lead to redemption. I, I mean, I have no problem with someone that personally believes that and if they want to go through that on their own. Right fine. I mean, I won't object to that, but I don't think that should ever be imposed on people who don't share those beliefs.
2: (laughs) It's
1: easy to say all that stuff when you're not the one in pain. Uh,
2: I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, some of the arguments that you cited against uh, against physician-assisted suicide hold water, especially talking about disability rights um, activists, things like that. But for me, I don't know if I could ever get past the autonomy thing. Like, I don't want anybody to tell me what I can do with my—like, I I know it's such a slippery slope or whatever, but, like, I don't know. I feel like if, if I want to die, that's my right to die. I don't have the right to kill Hemant, but I have the right to kill myself. Glad to hear it. hmm You know, I, I— Well, and
0: legally, you have the right to end your own life. Oh. The, ending your own life, suicide is not illegal anywhere in the United States.
1: Right. What right. are they going to do to you? Right.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you, not, uh, I'm not if you joking attempt- about it. It would be illegal for people to end their own lives, if and people who would, commit, you know, attempt suicide and, and fail could be jailed. Right. Yeah, that that isn't in, in the uh, not so distant past. But, right. I mean, you can end your own life if you want to, but there are laws in most states that prohibit anyone from aiding someone in ending their own life. Oof. What? So um, How- I, I want to make uh, a distinction here because. You've used the phrase assisted suicide, Uh Mm -hmm. and we don't use that phrase. Um, We call it medical aid in dying because there's a big distinction between uh, someone who has a a mental illness, is despondent or depressed, and carries out an act of desperation,
2: uh, Mm.
0: many times violent, versus someone who is terminally ill and suffering and has the desire for a peaceful death. So that's why we call it medical aid in dying. Someone's already dying. They, they probably want to live, but they have a, a terminal disease that's causing the end of their lives. So uh, it's, we look at it as one more option for people among several that you can exercise at the end of life.
1: Were you an advocate for any of this stuff before you were put in this situation? Did you know about these issues and the controversies?
0: I wasn't an advocate before this happened to me, and this experience was um, the catalyst for me to get involved in this, absolutely. I mean, I was kind of vaguely aware of all that, but I didn't think all that much about it, Um, but I've certainly learned a lot in this whole journey over the last two years, and I want to share some interesting information with you here, too, because we, we talk about religious opposition to aid in dying, and it's there but uh, Compassion and Choices, which is an organization I work with, they're an end-of-life advocacy and service organization, they did polling in New York State at the end of 2015 into 2016 uh, regarding medical aid and dying. And among the faith community, and this really surprised me, they found that, and and I'm talking about the entire state, not just New York City, they found that 74% of Catholics support aid and dying. 74% Hmm. of Protestants support aid and dying. 83% 83 of Jews support aid and dying. So faith believers overwhelmingly support support aid and dying. The one subset that doesn't were faith believers who attend religious services more than once a week. And that's really a small subset. Wow, all the people who identify themselves as faith believers. So it's clear that most faith believers agree that this should be an option at the end of life. That's not true of faith. Leaders, um, almost all religious doctrines, uh, do not support something like aid and dying. Mm-hmm. But it, I just thought that was pretty interesting
2: uh, polling numbers
0: because I didn't expect to find that at all.
2: That is interesting.
1: In what ways uh, the group that you work with, what was it called, Compassion?
2: Compassion and Choices.
1: Compassion and Choices. What are some of the big things you are advocating for? Is it more educating people on these issues, or are you lobbying state governments to pass laws to make this a legal thing?
0: Well, I mean, we do um, support medical aid and dying legislation, but we also support legislation that improves end-of-life care. Uh, ending unwanted medical treatment, which is a big problem for for many, many people, especially mm-hmm. as they near the end of their lives. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that many people don't want to discuss their end-of-life wishes. You know, we kind of live in a culture that's very disturbed by the concept of death. Mm-hmm. So many times people are reluctant to have these conversations. And if you don't have the conversations, you can't possibly be sure that your wishes will be carried out you have to discuss it and they should be written down and that's still even no guarantee that they'll be honored even if they're written down in legal documents so i mean that's one of the things that we advocate for um compassion choices is also a service organization so they have an end of life consultation service and they have uh, areas on their website where you can download advanced directives or um toolkits to help you start having these conversations. So they, they do a number of things, uh, definitely lobbying, legislative um, advocacy, and uh, all of it is to basically improve end-of-life care and expand options at the end of life. And, I mean, I don't know anyone who can argue with that. We all need to have better end-of-life care.
2: It's uh, it's funny you say that. I recently listened to an episode of Planet Money, the NPR uh, podcast. There's an episode called The Co- The Town That Loves Death. And it's some town, I want to say it's in Wisconsin, that somehow, I don't know what exactly happened, but this subject of talking about your own death and your own wishes for what happens when and after you die is just something that everybody discusses. It's all on the table. It's not unusual to talk about. And it's they kind of, t- I mean, it's an economics podcast. So they talk about the economic implications of that and like everybody's always getting what they want and healthcare costs went down because it turns out a lot of people when given the option they would rather not you know go through all this medical care if they have a say in it um anyway it's episode 521 of planet money it's really good anyway go well, on. And go and on it, through it, lives.
0: if people are asked what's most important to them And it certainly changes as you go throughout life. I mean, if you ask a 20-year-old, they probably want to live a pretty long life. Mm -hmm. But once you're 80 years old, it may be more important to you to stay at home and not go to the hospital every time you're not feeling well. Quality of life issues matter to a lot of people. And we will never know that unless we ask them what matters to them. Mm -hmm. So um, even if people don't want to talk about actual end-of-life wishes, if we can at least ask what's most important to them right now, that can be a guideline to giving them what's appropriate care. Mm -hmm. And and, and I think the best care and the most appropriate care is care that's based on a person's personal values. Mm -hmm. And that will be different for each of us.
1: I could be uh, wrong about the details here, but I remember when I was looking you up, I came across a story about Brittany Maynard, uh, who famously uh, talked publicly about how she was going to mm-hmm. end her life uh, in the carav- in one of the states where that sort of thing is legal. And because she was so young, uh, that got a lot of media attention. But I remember reading that, I think she reached out to you about this?
0: Actually, I reached out to her. Um, well, I what did you sent say her a letter? Her?
1: What did you say to her? Well,
0: I can't remember the exact thing, <laughs> but I, I basically told her that I was, um, I admired her courage for speaking out about it and that I wished I'd had the chance to meet her and speak with her personally. And I only sent that a, a week actually before she died and I got a message back from her and I never expected her to respond to me. And, uh, it, it was a very moving uh, response and she hoped that I would continue to speak out about, uh, the rights of people at the end of life. And so uh, I I think she is a woman who was very courageous, and she was a game changer. She got people talking about this, and that's really the very first step in this whole process. We need to talk about uh, what we want if uh, we become very seriously ill or terminally ill.
1: That's... and.
0: You know, dying has changed in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. People can live very, very long lives. Even people who are seriously ill or terminally ill, you can still live a very long time. So uh, the questions need to revolve around what kind of care we want and what's the most important to us, depending on what kind of situations we're facing. Mm -hmm.
1: At some point uh, over the past uh, couple of years, and I'm not sure the exact date uh, you told your story on 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper, and I'm, I'm really curious, after that segment aired, what was the response that you got? Uh, what did that do for the advocacy that you do?
0: Well, after I did that, a lot of people wanted to hear from me a lot more, so uh, it definitely helped. Uh, I had started speaking out uh, to groups uh, publicly, and... Um, After the 60 Minutes piece, more people wanted to hear from me. So I do public speaking. uh, I've been to 20 different states, and I speak to all kinds of groups, um, community groups, senior groups, faith-based groups, secular groups, students, faculty. uh, And uh, people are interested in in hearing my story, and I explain why I've become an advocate for medical aid in dying. And, uh, you know, my, my most important goal in this is, is not medical aid and dying. My most important goal is advocating for improved end-of-life care that is based on people's values. If their values include something like medical aid and dying, I think they should have that option available with the safeguards that are written into the law. And uh, it, it's done well in Oregon over the past 20 years. There has not been any case of abuse misuse or coercion in the carrying out of the law so i think it's worked well and i think it should be expanded to other states so people can utilize it if they want to
1: do you know if it is choice. being?
0: you know it's choice it's not not a directive it's not to be forced on anybody it should be an right. option for those who qualify
1: right. do you know if it is being expanded to other states or if we're close to seeing it in more than just what five states
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, last year, there were 25 states plus the District of Columbia had introduced aid and dying legislation. Now, just introducing it doesn't mean it's going to happen. You know, getting any law like this passed is is a rather arduous process. But Colorado is very close. Uh, They tried to pass it through their legislative process in Colorado
2: didn't work
0: so now it's uh they have direct democracy in colorado through ballot initiatives mm-hmm. so it is on their november 8th ballot uh an aid and dying uh bill and it, hopefully it'll pass i i think it may be close but there's a good chance it may uh, become become in colorado very soon uh, district of columbia just passed uh, an aid and dying bill out of their city council committee and it will go for a full council vote i believe in two months so uh, other states are moving slowly towards uh, enacting their own aid and dying legislation. A lot of them are in this eastern part of the country. So Maryland, New Jersey, New York State, uh, they're moving closer, Massachusetts is. So it, it, it definitely has what happened with Brittany Menard in California, I think has inspired others to push, push more for it too.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing your story, educating us on this issue. We'll have links to uh, your story and Compassion and Choices uh, in the show notes for this episode. Thank you again.
0: Thank you, Hammett, and thank you, Jessica. Thank you.